Welcome to Bach Lab, the podcast by Emmanuel Music in Boston, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia, and this is part two of my conversation with Pamela DeLau to explore what is a cantata. This is a really special episode because we all get to listen to some excerpts from the beautiful and thought-provoking Bach Cantata BWV 115 and explore some of the different parts of cantatas through hearing some examples and doing analysis. As we discover, no cantatas are exactly alike, so think about this as more of an exercise in practicing to try to understand them and learning about some of the tools Bach employs that makes them so powerful. Um, so do you think we should just play a little bit of the, the first movement? Yeah, let's listen to this um, first movement of cantata 115, which is Mache dich mein Geist bereit. I love your German. <laughs> um, do you think it would be helpful first to kind of outline the structure of this? I think, I think that would be useful. Um, one thing that I always feel when I'm talking about a cantata is the game of expectations. Mm-hmm. So um, when, we, when we think about what the libretto might be saying, the sort of basic message, the tone of the piece, um, we might start to imagine, you know, what Bach would do with it. So this cantata, I, I mentioned the Sundays after Trinity, and this is very late in that period of time. The readings for the Sundays right before we get to Advent become darker and darker mm. and really bring us towards this idea that the world is about to end. We need to atone for our sins, um, the fear of judgment. And indeed, we're being told in this opening movement, get ready, right? Um, that's what Machadi. Yeah, might, the title. Yeah. Um, and you got to pray and you got to be vigilant. You don't want to be caught off guard because Satan is mm-hmm. after you. Yeah. Right. So, and I want to let the listener know um, two things. One is you can always find the translations for these on the Emmanuel Music website or on Pam's website if you want to follow along, um, if you, either the German or the translation. And then also, one of the reasons um, I chose this cantata to be the one we talked about, other than that it's you know a beautiful example, is um, I've recently um, posted Craig Smith's essay on this on our Facebook. So if you would like to have a little bit more context and analysis, you're welcome to check that out too. So if you feel like following along, you definitely can. That's great. So like I was saying, you might think that this piece is going to uh, make us very frightened, mm-hmm. um, that it's going to maybe be very somber, um, probably in a minor key. Um, it's like I said, the, the expectations game, like what would I imagine a piece? Well, especially after, you know, put yourself in that place, like sitting and listening to this very dark sermon, you know, very scary. Right, right. So now let's listen to a little bit of the opening. Thank you. 
So I'm just going to jump in. Um, I find this a really, really interesting corral opening movement because of that juxtaposition between exactly what you were saying, this darkness of the the text, um, if you read it, and then also the juxtaposition between kind of the instrumental introduction and then when the voices come in, it's like you're confused. Obviously, the expectations when you first hear the you know violin and the flutes and then when the voices come in it's like almost immediately like ambiguous and perhaps dark um yeah i think um there's a lot of rhetoric here mm-hmm. and and musicians use rhetoric as a way of saying a musical gesture feels like it's speaking to you oh. you know it just it, it's just so filled with meaning that it's just popping out um <clears throat> an example that we just heard was when the Choral line says Wache. Um, the sopranos are going, they're singing the tune. But underneath you hear Wache in the in the low underlying voices, and that really pops out. It's it's sort of like a, a sudden flash of warning. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that just dazzles me about this movement is first of all, it just it's so pretty, right? It's it's in a major key. It has a really sort of sunny, um, optimistic-sounding melody. Mm-hmm. That's partly the chorale itself, but it's also how Bach, you know, elaborates on it—the the motives that he creates in the orchestra. Um, and so, this is the first movement is often the chorale movement, mm-hmm. and so that melody is taken directly from that hymn that the people would know what the sopranos are singing mm-hmm. um but everything else right. is is sort of you know newly imagined um so i have a, a thesis that I, I love to sort of explore with bach which is that bach is trying to startle us mm. that that he will do something unexpected a lot uh because he's trying to shake us out of our complacency mm-hmm. Um, a, a mistake that this is, I think, why religious traditions are often suspicious of of music is that um, music is so sensually beautiful that we can turn our brains off and just kind of bask mm-hmm. in in the, the the beauty of it, right? And um, Bach's music is, you know, extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. Um, but my feeling, particularly in the cantatas, is that he's constantly trying to interrupt that, to shock us, to surprise us, to to introduce something that wakes us up yeah. from that little trance that we're in, um, in order to make us participants, to keep us from being spectators. Interesting. And um, in this opening movement, I hear some of those um, devices. Yeah. Um, this, this this sort of serene, happy, um, scurrying music. Um, and then when the singers come in, you notice mm-hmm. how the harmony gets darker and there's like these strange little twists. Um, if you have any kind of a musical sense, you, you really react to those things. You're like, whoa, whoa, what was that? You know, why did that just happen? Um, I think that's all in the service of if we're being told that the end of the world is near, maybe we are just going on in our daily lives and everything mm. seems fine. And then there's this little, wait a minute, something's wrong. Yeah. 
Um, so he portrays this state of our minds in a, in a way that I might not have chosen. Like I might have been like scolding, be ready, be ready, you know. Well, and also this is his second take at this theme, you know, or, you know, I'm sure this theme comes off a lot. So this is just one of many ways to explore that. Right. So, so the way that we walk into this cantata is with a sense of we're not ready. Mm-hmm. This is our. This is how we go about our lives. We're we're sort of busy doing things, and nevertheless, we're going to need to change. And the music is subtly reinforcing that with these underlying things, yeah. but not the surface. And that that's it's just brilliant. It is. And so, is that something that we would find often in a chorale movement? This first movement, kind of a you know overarching stance, perhaps. I think that that's a fruitful way to look at a lot of Bach pieces, Mm -hmm. um, to sort of try to capture the main tone and then ask that next question, why? You know, why did he choose that? Mm. And then thinking back to kind of how this is like sonically um, and then also as an example for a Bach cantata, Um, One thing I notice in a lot of the first movements is this kind of, you know, introduction of a theme and then development on it, like in a a fugue way almost. Am I correct to say that that's something often in these first movements, these chorus movements? You will hear counterpoint, Mm -hmm. Um, but not always. I mean, I I think one thing that, that is really amazing when you get familiar with the large body of cantatas is how how different each one is from the other. Okay. Um, I I think we 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 desperately want to make um, generalizations, but it's hard to make generalizations in the way that he structures these pieces. Even okay. the chorale cantatas. I mean, the chorale cantata. You say, well, I'm going to hear a chorale <laughs> in some part, in some place, but he might he might hide that chorale in a very strange place. Like sometimes he'll put it in the bass Mm. or in the alto. Um, And sometimes um, it's governing the structure or the, or the harmony or the rhetoric in in an unexpected way. Yeah. So here he creates a form that has a certain kind of, predictability can we say but then uh, he he is constantly playing with it um i have i have of the opinion which some scholars share that this season when he wrote all of these chorale cantatas was in some ways the pinnacle of his creative life that 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 he he set himself a task of almost daunting um complexity and and a schedule that was you know hard to believe he wrote a brand new work every single week for you know the better part of a year um but not he didn't just simply do that he it would have been amazing if he'd used a template and followed his template mm-hmm. they still would have been great works but he kept changing the form yeah every single one of these pieces is unique in in its formal structure you know of yeah. course they're unique in 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 many ways but but he didn't settle on something that we can say, okay, now we know we're going to hear something like this next time. Yeah. So then maybe maybe our example isn't quite an example and more, um, you know, so, like 
exploring this concept through a piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one thing that is structural, I would say, is that cantatas and Bach cantatas are made up of these different parts that are the chorale, the aria, and the recitative. Um, so we just heard a chorale or a bit of it, um, and you can always go listen to the full thing on our YouTube. Um, another part is the aria. Um, is it okay if we listen to the soprano aria from this? Sure. Segment? Yeah. I love it. It's so. <laughs> one of the very, very great works that he ever wrote. Okay, so we listened to a little bit of that gorgeous soprano aria. Yeah, so here's another instance where I think the the danger of just giving in mm. to how beautiful it is is very great. Yeah, before we get into a little bit of the, the rhetoric and the analysis, um, you know, what is an aria? Mm -hmm. So aria, I think, is a term that we can easily associate with a solo voice. Mm -hmm. um, the English word is air. Okay. And um, you will see that term used in, in England in the Baroque period. They don't call them arias, they call them airs. Uh, air, we can think of as a tune even. Um, but the, the, an aria, certainly from its conception in the early Baroque, was was meant as a um, extended um closed off movement for a solo singer the aria is going to be um remember i mentioned that the 
the poem, the part of the poem that the aria is, is very formally structured. So it has a rhyme scheme, it has a set number of lines, it has um, a, generally a very poetic sort of metrical form. And all of those things contribute to it being more contemplative. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a reflection on a state of mind or, or an event. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a window into the soul. Yeah. And, and that's true in opera too. Mm -hmm. But certainly the arias in Bach and Tadas function that way. Yeah. Um, it's states of mind. Definitely. So in this piece, we have not only the soprano soloist, but we have two solo instruments that accompany her. It really is like a trio. Yeah. Um, and these can have all different instrumentations. The, the first aria in this piece is much more dense. Right. And that piece has a full orchestra mm -hmm. accompaniment. Um, this is a more transparent texture because we don't have the body of the strings playing along. Um, and it's a very unusual combination of a solo cello, which in Bach's day was actually a, a special instrument called the violoncello piccolo, yeah. a little cello. Oh. That, yeah, because usually the cello is, is the continual instrument. Right, right. But this this was a, um, a smaller instrument with a bigger range, so it had higher pitches. Of course, we can hear that the modern cello can play every single note in this part, but... It's a, it's a slightly different character. And the flute. So the flute is in a very high range and the cello is in much more of a sort of tenor range, um, widely separated in their you know, musical spaces. Mm -hmm. But they're both playing the same um, motive, mm. which is a, a very interesting combination of a kind of a thawing sigh and then a... Um, a kind of a angular da -dee -da, um, which has a kind of a yearning yeah. quality to it. Um, I think it's so expressive this motive that you almost don't need to hear the singer's words. It's true. You can you can imagine a state of being, a state of mind, just by listening to the instruments. Yeah, and relating it back to that chorale and the themes of the day, it's you know it's about praying and making sure you're you know kind of in the right place before you know, the reckoning and all of that. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the other thing that's really compelling about this piece, it unfolds over a very long period of time mm. because it's so slow, even though the, the, the structure of the piece is actually not, not so long. Mm -hmm. um, and the text is definitely not. The text long. is not long, but what I hear in it, which I, think is very closely tied to the text is there's a sort of a ritualistic aspect to it. The fact that this, it just, it's almost in every bar. Yeah. Turning cycles. It, yeah. Absolutely. As if, as if your act of prayer has to be continually renewed because the guilt that you're feeling, which is described very clearly in the text, hasn't, gone away yet and, and it won't you and, know. It, and it won't yeah so this this sense of the music driving us to feel the urgency mm. but also the 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 static nature Absolutely. of of this this time of prayer um 
I think it's 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 very present in this music. And again, it's sort of the antidote to just giving into, oh, well, that's just gorgeous. You know, that's <laughs> just so beautiful. Yeah, it, it kind of it kind of makes you sit and think with it, you know, because it can be beautiful for a minute. Right. And then you're what else do I do with this, you know? Right, mm-hmm. right. So the the fact that he makes us sit with it so long, it's yeah. about 10 minutes long, yeah. um, partly because it's a da capo. And, and da capo is a, basically means from the top, but that's a shorthand for saying that when we get to the last bar that's in the score, we go back to the beginning again and repeat the, opening long section so it a da capo aria is basically a three-part aria aba aba um and that makes this piece you know that much longer Mm -hmm. and that can kind of lead us into talking about like the length of cantatas you know if this movement is 10 minutes you know in a long symphony that might not feel substantial but in a cantata cantatas are only like 20 to 30 minutes usually so this is a substantial part of it. That's right. In, in the first movement, which we heard a little bit of, um, is extremely short. Mm-hmm. So that's, of course, not the case in other cantatas. Sometimes the first movement is the, the major uh, time occupier in the sort of most massive yeah. movement. Um, and that's another way that Bach just keeps changing expectations. Uh, in this particular cantata, these two arias the one you mentioned earlier for alto and, and full orchestra uh, is also quite lengthy. Yeah. So what he does is he focuses our attention on these private moments, these personal moments of trying to reconcile our daily life with what is coming <clears throat> with so, future times. Yeah, he's using he's using structure and he's using length as you know, a rhetorical device, again, to get to the message and the sermon and all of that. Exactly, exactly, in an experiential way. Mm. Um, and that's, of course, what music can do, that no preacher can do, Yeah. which is music can occupy time and make us experience something. We, we can hear someone talking words, and that's an experience, but it's not the same as letting a melody unfold and and waiting for it to take us where it's going to take us yeah. and being at the mercy of of the unfolding of that absolutely and it's it's kind of what you said earlier it's another language but it's not a language right you know but it communicates exactly very powerfully yeah so now we move on to the kind of last piece of a cantata which is the recitative can listen a little bit to the one that comes after this aria. Oh. 
So in that we heard, again, a single voice um, and then kind of continual accompaniment. That's where you heard the cello and probably the keyboard. And that's usually the function of the cello. Shows how different it was in that aria. Um, and it's kind of declaiming text. It's a little bit more spoken. It's very different than the aria. Absolutely. Um, if you were to look at the text, you would see that it doesn't have that regular structure mm. um, with a very simple rhyme scheme or meter. Yeah. Instead, it looks a lot more like prose. The recitative in a Bach cantata in some ways is the most operatic mm. form. I mean, mm -hmm. it's ironic we think of the aria as being such an operatic thing. But the idea that a singer would stand up and sing, declaim text that is um, speech-like in form and, and dramatic, um, I think that was the thing that offended some of the traditionalists. Interesting. It's like, why are we hearing this? this yeah, we don't need to hear from you. Right. Right, we're wanting right. to hear from you. Yeah. The, the, I personally love the form of the recitative, and I think it's, it's fascinating. Bach is a master at composing them, and of course, if you're curious to see what he does that's so great, you want to listen to the harmony. You want to see um, how he changes where we might be going. Unexpected directions. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's also, I think, um, he writes beautiful shapes for the singers to sing that can be very expressive. But but we we don't necessarily hear melodies in recits. Um, it, there's a couple of different ways to think about how a recit functions. Mm -hmm. um, a simple way would be, this is a substitute for the preacher. Now the preacher's telling us something, instructing us, mm -hmm. you know, laying out something. Um, I find that most of Bach's recits can be very personal, as if somebody was standing up and testifying in front yeah. of the congregation and saying, I have had this experience, I feel this, and I want to share this with you so you learn from me. Mm. Um, I find as a performer, that's a, that's a more fruitful um, perspective to have. Instead of being projecting myself as someone who knows everything, and I am the keeper of all sanctity, and I... Messenger. Yeah. yeah. It, instead, to, to be a confessioner. Mm. Um, I, I can't claim that that's how Bach saw his recits, but I find that as a performer and also interpreter, they are much more powerful when we perform them that way. And, and they're very um, exciting as yeah. well. So we've gone over the three main components of a cantata. We've heard some amazing examples from BWV 115. And BWV, that's the catalog of Bach's works. Yeah, it stands for Bach Werkefetzeichnis, which yeah. is Bach works catalog. So cantatas will have, can have multiple of these parts. And often they have, like, they start with a chorale and they end with a chorale. Um, so you've gotten a little taste for perhaps not what to expect, but what to look for. And then you can you know, do your own analysis from there. I'd love to move on to kind of the cantata in general and how it can affect us and what it means and its kind of effect on the world a little bit. That's, that's a lot, but yeah. um, 
you know, why do we keep returning to these works and why are they so important? Such a great question. Um, for me, I've felt that most of the music that we hear in a sacred service is music of praise, hmm. um, which is a, a glorious thing. And many unbelievably great masterpieces have been written, you know, in praise of God or, um, you know, other sort of um, very foundational and, and simple concepts of, of mourning or, or comfort, right? These are, these are things you go to church for, mm -hmm. right? What's really different about Bach cantatas is their complexity. Yeah. And the fact that they have these journeys Almost every cantata is going to take us on a journey. The cantata we listen to um, starts out, you know, our, our, our theme is wake up, be ready for the end times. But we started out musically kind of in that unaware, happy, daily mm. living place. And gradually the cantata takes us deeper and deeper into how we need to prepare. Yeah. So we come out of a Bach cantata in a different place emotionally than we started. Yeah. Um, I think that's revolutionary. Mm. Um, I can't point to any work prior to Bach that had that kind of an ambition in a sacred context. And I still feel that his works are unique yeah. in that way. Um, there's a very powerful debate going on in Bach scholarship these days um, in terms of looking at his works and trying to understand them from his perspective and from the perspective of devout Lutherans yes. of his day and time. Um, this is an important exercise. Mm -hmm. But I fear that it misses an important point, which I made earlier, which is that music is in the present tense. Yeah. And that we wouldn't care about these pieces if they were simply the words that we read. Mm. None of this poetry is deathless. You know, it's not John Donne. It's not Petrarch. But what Bach is doing in his musical composition, he's reaching out to whoever is listening to him and basically saying, you need to pay attention. Yeah. I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. And this affects you. This is about you. We have people who adore Bach who are not Christian, mm -hmm. who are not going to assent to many of the things he says, but nevertheless, they know he's speaking to them. Wow, yeah. Because for me, it's the human condition mm -hmm. that he's portraying. The fact that there is an existential fear in all of us about how our existence might suddenly come to an end, whether it's our personal death or whether the, the world as we know it might change. Um, how do we deal with that? Um, just again, using the examples from the cantata we listen to, um, how can we focus our minds? How can we take care of the things that we know are wrong in us? Yeah. And, and make ourselves better people. That is, is such a powerful message. And I don't think that only 18th century Lutherans 
are being addressed here. Yeah. And I think it's powerful that both like the questions that he's asking are important and then the expression of it is powerful and interesting, you know? Yes. I think it's that amazing combination. Uh, Another thing that I find again and again in the greatest movements, the greatest Bacchantatas, is how he'll tell us something in a, in a sort of an overt way, but the music expresses the difficulty of living up to that idea. Hmm. Um, I, I, it, it's, it's a kind of uh, musical irony in a way, or... Um, I like to call it aspirational text setting, where we might be saying, I love God, or I want to be at peace, or, or I um, want to watch out for the devil. And the music is showing us something seductive about sin. Yeah. Or, or um, expressing... The, the very deep-seated fear we have of death that we can't shake even though we know we need to accept it. Yeah. Um, there is this level of complexity in, in the music, highly expressive music, that is often in opposition to the text or is adding layers of deep meaning to the text. Um, uh, to me, this is Bach's greatest power, and, and I think it's the thing that keeps bringing us back yeah. um, and and wise pieces are completely relevant to our secular day and age mm -hmm. absolutely um, yeah this has made me so excited to go listen to more cantatas and keep exploring thank you thank you and and i hope everyone um takes this opportunity to discover a lot more Bach Lab is brought to you by Emanuel Music in Boston. Throughout this episode, you heard excerpts from Bach Cantata BWV 115 presented by the Orchestra and Chorus of Emanuel Music and recorded live at Emanuel Church on October 31st, 2021. Our introduction and closing music is from Bach Cantata BWV 127, also presented by Emanuel Music and recorded on February 27th, 2022. Both recordings were engineered by Seth Torres and are available on our YouTube channel. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast. Visit emmanuelmusic.org to learn more about us and explore our exciting 53rd season. Thanks for listening.